Welcome to the November edition of the Palliative Care Update Echo. This month, it's a bit different because Hospice UK are holding their annual conference in Liverpool. And so we don't have our normal clinical echo meeting on which to base the podcast. Instead, we've included a panel discussion from the recent Meta Echo Conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. This panel was looking at the use of echo methodology to support palliative care delivery across the world and specifically how echo can reduce suffering in very different settings. Professor Christopher Piramele from New Mexico and now based in Anchorage, Alaska, has been working with an indigenous community's support end-of-life care for many years. Professor Raj Gopal, the father of the palliative care movement in India, comes from Trivandrum, where the organization that he founded, Pallium India, makes extensive use of echo methodology. Dr. Megan Doherty is a pediatric palliative care doctor from Ottawa in Canada, who also is a director with the Two Worlds charity and heads up Echo Network supporting paediatric palliative care across South and Southeast Asia. I, Max Watson, was honoured to be the fourth member of the panel. I'm a palliative care doctor in Northern Ireland, but also direct with Hospice UK, the Echo programme, and have been involved in international palliative care for many years, supporting the rollout of palliative care echo networks in Asia and South America. We hope you'll find the panel discussion interesting and useful in thinking about your own use of echo wherever you practice palliative care. We begin with Chris, who chaired the panel discussion. Well, we're excited to share a little bit about palliative care across the globe. Um, I am so thankful to have my dear friends and esteemed uh, colleagues up here with us today so that we could just dive in and, and really start to explore what does palliative care look like across the world? And most importantly, how has ECHO been leveraged to really transform communities? One thing I'll share a little bit about myself. Um, so I'm a palliative medicine physician uh, here at the uh, University of New Mexico in the Division of Palliative Medicine. And um, I've been so fortunate to have the opportunity to work with indigenous people. And I want to recognize that we happen to be on indigenous lands. And, and I'm so grateful and humbled by the opportunities to work in the Alaska Tribal Health System, Indian Health System, and with Pueblo tribes across New Mexico and Arizona. One thing that I've learned that has really impacted me especially in the work of palliative medicine, is how important story is. The story of our patients and our families are the foundations of palliative care and really help to shape what we do. And these stories are so integral, especially amongst all of you with your echoes. And so I hope today as we share um, our stories um, that we can glean how some of the innovations of how ECHO has been used and leveraged across the world, these innovations can be applied to each of your ECHOs. And that's what's so great about meta-ECHOs. We come together to learn from one another. And so we have Dr. Raj Gopal with Pallium India, um, and so thankful for him to be here. We have Dr. Megan Doherty, um, who is with the Two Worlds Cancer Collaborative, who, what's amazing, has uh, 
spread echoes um, throughout the world in, in a number of different countries, especially Southeast Asia and parts of East Africa. And then Max Watson and Professor Max Watson has been an inspiration to many of us with not only palliative care echoes, but echoes across many specialties. I'm gonna open up with our first question. And the, the thing I wanted to ask all of you, um, and we'll start with you, Raj, is just thinking about palliative care. Palliative care has so many dimensions to it, but it also looks so different in different communities across the world. So I just wonder if you can give us a little bit of a snapshot. What does palliative care look like and, and how has uh, Pallium India just um, been able to reach out in your communities? So I'll start with you. Thank you. <clears throat> um, the differences that we come across when I have uh, seen not exactly Max's program, but the palliative care programs in that country and here. The differences one, the magnitude, the enormity of the problem. In my country alone, we have seven to 10 million people in serious health-related suffering. We are possibly reaching around 4% of them. But we are greedy. By 2030, we want to get there. And for that, echo very clearly is the root we couldn't possibly train healthcare providers in person for all these to cater to these needs. But then one peculiarity which I expect I must be sharing with 84% of the rest of the world, apart from high income countries, the low and middle income countries, is when we come across patients, their suffering is also because of poor fundamental health care. I, when our team goes out on home visits, they cannot just treat pain and symptoms and address emotional issues and walk away because the diabetes is uncontrolled. The hypertension is uncontrolled. The team also has to care for primary health issues. We can't just say that's not our job. If I met a man in the monsoons who was holding up an umbrella in his home, advanced cancer. He couldn't lie down because the roof was leaking. They no longer had the money to repair the roof. And how do you tackle that? And that was my final point. Without involving the community, it cannot be done. Yesterday from the uh, floor, from the uh, one speaker, we heard, it is a myth that we cannot get the community to help unless you pay money. They proved it. We prove it. The poorest the poor, people come and help to pull a tarpaulin over the roof. We have to provide food kits for those who are starving. They wouldn't ordinarily be starving in my state of Kerala, but when disease strikes, they starve. So we have to, the magnitude is enormous, and the dimensions of the suffering is not just a disease. It's much more than that. And when we put the social determinants in a box and keep it there, as if it is somebody else's problem, 
it uh, makes our work meaningless thank you thank you raj in megan i just uh i i know you've worked in numerous countries and so i was just how does the tenets of palliative care look across the places that you've worked and used and applied echo thanks chris so i have um been working and and working with teams and leading and developing pediatric and adult palliative care echoes in India, Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Bhutan, Philippines, and and from that we have seeded many other echo programs as well across Africa, East Africa, French Africa. So there's a lot we can see that is common. You know, I think one thing we really emphasize in all of our programs is this compassion and how do we awaken and give a voice and a place for the compassion to come out because many of the people who join our echoes they just don't know how to help that child that they're seeing you know they may see a child um for example last week we started an echo in sri lanka for pediatricians and the, as soon as we started talking about like what children do you see who might need palliative care they start listing off children with all these chronic conditions and they just say I, they come to my hospital and i don't know how to help them i don't know what to do for a child with cerebral palsy like my hospital isn't equipped for this and so a lot of what we're doing is giving tools and ideas and a way of looking after children and it's not just about the medicines you know a child with cerebral palsy it's not really very much about the medicines it's about everything else exactly what uh dr raj said we we give food packets you know because when we were doing palliative care programs for children who live in urban slums you know the family's like well it's very nice you're seeing my child but like really all my other children are very hungry so like you're kind of wasting your time if you just come and visit this child with cerebral palsy and do stretching and give them their medicines what we need is a roof over our head what we need is food and so you have to listen i think that the lesson is to listen to the community partner and join with them and say you know this is our philosophy in palliative care you know we want to address suffering improve quality of life what does that look like in your community and you're the experts in your own community and you know we bring in community health workers who are members of the the slum community to say what does it look like what do you see as the needs of your own people and and they drive the project forward for us thank you megan and i i hear social determinants of health and and i know all of us in all of our echoes those are interwoven important issues that impact all the work that we're doing so it's just so helpful to hear um just how important that is <clears throat> max i i wonder with um the many echoes that you're a part of in the UK <clears throat> just can you share a little bit with us some of your perspectives about tenants of palliative care and in how it does weave through many of the echoes that you're a part of thanks chris i'm just going to first say i had the privilege of of walking beside megan at the indian association of palliative care congress uh, back in february and people coming up to her from all over the place like oh you're megan ah you're so small i thought in zoom you'd be much bigger she had a human connection through zoom with people from right across south asia that human connection uh is part and parcel of the energy of echo to really change and support people in terms of palliative care i think in palliative care is the sort of care that you would want that i would want if we were approaching the end of life 
and it's about mitigating suffering. And suffering's a slippery beast. It, it needs a head, heart, and hands approach. Uh, it, it's your umbrella and fixing the roof and fixing food, as well as opioid receptors and all of that stuff. Last week, Joan came to see me in my hospice. Uh, she hadn't wanted to come anywhere near a hospice because she's 37 years old, she's got five kids, and she's got metastatic bowel cancer, which was diagnosed at, at her last pregnancy. Uh, she, only reason she came was because she thought maybe I could drain her swelling abdomen. So the, the head approach, I put on the ultrasound. I'm afraid there was no ascites there. There was just malignancy. I, I, head approach, I, I could alter her medications a little bit to help. The main approach was sitting beside her and listening to that pain, that pain that you could imagine. A, a mom facing leaving her kids, uh, the fear of how she was going to die. One of the things I, I, I explained to her how, how death might be to a 30-something woman with five kids. But that was one of her concerns. And oh, you know what one other concern was? She was worried that she was a bad mum because she was leaving her kids. Uh, and she couldn't write them the messages that she knows she, she wanted to. She just burst into tears every time she tried to start that stuff. So what, what, then what was the, what were the, 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 the hand stuff that we did? We got her a wheelchair so she could continue to go and watch her kids playing football. We, we got the physiotherapist to bandage her legs but, so she could, she could continue to make food for her kids. Um, we're working with her to help her write those messages. Why, uh, why am I saying this? I'm saying this because in our echoes in palliative, we're sharing how to care and saying, you know what? Uh, caring is really important. So when we're echoing across a community of uh, palliative care uh, community workers, it, you know, it, it's all right to focus on getting a wheelchair. It's all right to focus on the important things for that person. So palliative, I, some of my times I wish it, there, was, there wasn't the word. I think it's just good care, good care that often has been kicked out of medicine because we've become so medicalized. Thank you so much, Max. <laughs> mentioned the word presence and, and how important that is. And of course, there's the presence for the patients and the families that we serve, um, especially those that are clinical. But the other piece that I think about too is ECHO provides presence with our teams and with all these people who are feeling so isolated, working in oftentimes very remote or rural communities. And it's that's the brilliance of ECHO is it can break down those barriers. And it makes me think, Megan, like you have developed this connection across not just one community, but countries. And so I just wonder if you could share some insights of how you've been able to connect um, multiple different countries that have different cultures and traditions and some of the approaches that you took to do that and, and develop that connectedness. 
Yes, thank you, Chris. Um, so I think early on we had to recognize that there were some core principles of palliative care, some of the things I think we've shared about here today, and then how they come out and how you enact them in different places is different. And what um, my team, the leadership team's role is in building all these ECHO programs in different countries is to ask those questions and say, what does it mean in your community for someone to be cared for? What do they need when their child is coming to the end of their life? What support do they need? How do they experience that? And of course, that's different for every single person, you know, every single parent and family whose child is ill, uh, but there are patterns. And so what we have learned is there's like a core set of questions we have to ask when we go and we partner with a new country or a new place where we want to do an echo. And, you know, that looks different in Bhutan. Um, you know, we, we ask, well, what is it like? How do children die? You know, where do they go? What are the expectations? And through, you know, I attend a lot of echoes, not necessarily because I need to be there to lead them, because I have a huge team and we've created, you know, kind of specialist teams for each of our countries, but because I have to listen to the cases to know what are they really facing and how are they thinking about these children and the problems that they have. So that's been a really core insight for me, is that as much as we come as the experts and we have some ideas about how to you know, give pain medications, we have a lot of questions that we ask, and then those cases that they bring to the, to the, the echoes are an absolute goldmine for us to understand what does palliative care look like and what will it look like in that place. Thank you, Megan. And Raj, I, I, it's just uh, amazing to think about the journey that you have been on you're the founder of Pallium India, and I just wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about Pallium India and the intersection it had in integration of ECHO and how that's had, in, in many ways, a, a global impact. Uh, I told you we are greedy. We were looking after a few thousands of patients now, we want to reach 10 million people by 2030. And how could we do this in a country where palliative care was either unknown or something for the last few hours of life? And that's what uh, Echo empowered with us with. We could reach huge numbers of people there are people eager to learn. Doctors, nurses, social workers, and community volunteers with the heart, as Max said. They needed to be empowered. And that's where ECHO came in. We started in 2017, and we have, we, till then, over decades, we were able to train a few hundreds of healthcare professionals in person. Ours is a huge country. Uh, home to almost one-fifth of the global population. It's not easy to get across from one corner to the other uh, with, the, with the numerous problems we have. So now we are, we are hopeful that we will be able to reach all of them, all of them at some point of time. But then there are challenges, no doubt. Uh, yes, technical challenges, but more importantly, we are teaching people to do something vastly different from what they have been doing. During the COVID days, we trained about 1,200 doctors 
and almost 2000 nurses in palliative care virtually great isn't it but here are the consequences there was this doctor from northeast of india who was managing a critical care unit for covid and he could give a lot of comfort to a patient on who was on uh, uh, bipap with small doses of morphine small doses of morphine revolutionary to a person who has breathing difficulty the person was a lot better but three nurses got together they couldn't stand this injustice they said this person doctor was trying to kill the patient complaints went up all the doctors including super specialist doctors were up against arms we had to be there for this man to share international guidelines to share validation with international textbooks to give the evidence to the hospital authorities that this man was demonstrating compassion so this is one thing that we will have to do a lot how to use the eco platform not only to teach but to be with them mentoring them all the way through and we are not doing that well enough we will have to think about it and not only in my country i am sure this is valid for 86% of the global population uh, so that mentoring is one thing this second part that i wanted to bring out is about the heart and the hands that max talked about it's easy to impart knowledge through echo but how do you get that person to know how you interact with a patient when i see one of her young doctors talking to a patient just sitting like this with eye contact close enough not standing down and talking to them this they have to learn and how do they i suppose we could should be using more and more videos more and more role plays i think we need to transform the echo program keep mod, mod, modifying it so that we can train them in that and the skills the skills that are necessary that also i suppose will have to be done with more videos and more interaction thank you megan i i just want to build a little bit off um, dr raj's comments about mentoring and just our experiences of that being so important i think this is a little bit unique to palliative care and i'm sure many of you are doing echoes that involve palliative care or on palliative care and the you know it's we have we train doc perhaps we train a doctor i have an example a doctor in the philippines she came she got fellowship training in palliative care you know they think this is a fantastic idea see how many patients need this she goes back to her hospital in the philippines and she gets a bit depressed because nobody else gets it right as a, ho- a big hospital full of people and they're still giving care the old way and she has this new model the heart hands and, and mind model and so 
it can be really hard for people in palliative care, newly trained people, to get that support and that mentoring. And so the echo, they have come, you know, this doctor has come back into our echoes and it's just a place to get support and to be like, I am not alone in this. They're facing the same problem in Bangladesh, in Nepal, in India. Everyone's having this challenge that their hospital doesn't understand palliative care. They're up against all these barriers. And that is a way to support them to develop new programs and not just kind of, you know, get stuck. Thank you so much. One thing I was going to, it just came up that I wanted to ask all of you about. Resources vary across the world. And I know um, each of you have played a role, like just basic medications. We, uh, Raj, you mentioned liquid morphine. But there's so many parts of our world that, that don't even have basic medications to help with symptoms. And it's just been inspiring to see how each of you have, number one, used what you've learned from ECHO to break down some of those barriers and help on a policy level across the world to make it a reality to, to get medications available and to teach people how to use these medications in an appropriate way as well. But I was just wondering if, if um, each of you or, or one of you could speak to that a little bit. Uh, two weeks back, we were in Geneva working on another guideline for opioid access. We have your textbooks. We have the guidelines. Do you think they matter really for the 84% of the population? It's not real. And very often, in this matter of opioid access, it's like a game of tennis. You are here batting for pain relief. It's immediately returned by the addiction medicine specialists, saying, look at USA and Canada, look at the opioid deaths. The game goes on, nobody wins, only losers emerge. I think we also need to learn that we should be arguing for relief from suffering, recognizing that pain is suffering, but addiction also is suffering. We should be uh, acknowledging its problems and arguing for safe access to opioids. And this is necessary to journalists, to educators, bureaucrats and politicians. It took us 19 years to change the law concerning opioids in our country. But that's not enough. No, we have to make sure that the people there on the ground are aware of what is happening and how it is to be tackled. So our ECHO programs now, in the initial years, was all for professionals. Now it's also for people with lived experiences. We did three programs for people, families of uh, patients. And they then become advocates. <coughs> we also do programs for volunteers, volunteers training programs. So all this has to come together if we are really to make a change. Can I just say one figure for you guys to remember uh, is, is the figure of uh, how much it would cost to give children who are dying in pain across the world 
access to opioids. That figure is only $1 million every year, just $1 million. It's not about the money. It's about getting the, the, the team and the people and the commitment. And it's about mobilizing a population to say we cannot continue to let our children die in pain or our adults die in pain. Uh, and, and, and ECHO is about that, mobilizing, recognizing everyone's a teacher, everyone's a learner. And in this, we need to be respectful because another figure for you to th remember is that 95% of end-of-life care isn't delivered by experts with degrees. It's delivered by families <laughs> across the world. And, and we have the privilege of helping and supporting those families. And we shouldn't want to displace those families with our expertise. We've got to begin with commending them for all that they are doing and working alongside them not displacing them alongside them to continue to deliver that care. If we set up our models of hospices and palliative, we are going to do the world a disservice because we need to work with the care force who are currently and will be for our lifetimes delivering that care. Some words that I heard that were so helpful is, again, there's so many different needs, right? Families, caregivers. Um, I also heard Raj say, um, it's so important that we understand the contextualization. Each country, each community has a different context to understand how to address issues. And that's the beauty of ECHO. And so I just wonder from all of you to maybe share about what are the lessons learned from your palliative care echo that, that really apply across all echoes? Um, like I, I think we've talked about interdisciplinary perspectives. We've talked about um, self-care in some ways and breaking down isolation. But I just wonder if you can share a little bit about what have you learned from your own echoes that apply maybe to all echoes? I think one uh, lesson that Max taught me early on was that your echo is going to evolve. Your model is not fixed. You know, 10 years ago, when we did our echo training, immersion training, this is how you run an echo. And don't be afraid to change that. And we listened to our participants. We have an echo for residents, for postgraduate medicine residents in India on palliative medicine. And we listened to them and they said, what we really want is to have small group interactions with the expert teachers. So we said, okay, let's put in breakout rooms. And then they said, you know what? Best practices in education is that we use a flipped classroom model. And we're like, well, I don't know if that fits with ECHO. A flipped classroom, if everybody, just so you know, you, you ask your participants to do some pre-material, like pre-reading or watch a video ahead of time, and then they come to the ECHO prepared to actually discuss and interact. And so you don't do a lot of, like, didactic teaching in the ECHO. So, you know, that would not be the official ECHO model. But we said, you know, if that's what they want, they want this flipped classroom model. They're self-directed learners. We made videos. Um, we basically recycled videos um, that we gave them ahead of time each week, 20-minute video. Then they come prepared to the Echo, and it's discussion, and it's in breakout rooms. When Zoom invented the breakout rooms, we were like on that immediately. We said, let's use those. And so 
you know, and we didn't call up the Echo Institute and say, could we please use a flipped classroom with breakout rooms? We just did it, and then we evaluated it, and the feedback was, you know, because the residents had been in this Echo pre, when it was the traditional model, and then post once it went to this flipped classroom breakout, and the feedback was fantastic. They said, this is exactly what we want. So I think just that's my insight. Thank you, Megan. In, in a, Max, you shared too a little bit about sustainability and just, again, sometimes we get stuck in our perspective that an echo needs to go on forever for it to be successful. And you've taught me so much about that, that we need to shift that perspective. And if you could speak a little bit to that. We as palliative care doctors, we, we above all should recognize when an echo is dying and, and, and the time comes for a good death and we shouldn't, we shouldn't be worried about that. Uh, but dragging an echo on when it, people are not getting fed at that particular echo trough is inappropriate and unhelpful. And I guess the fundamentals of echo are the respect the listening, everyone a teacher, everyone a learner, that support. Th those are the fundamentals not to be messed with. But whether you have breakout rooms or, or uh, uh, case presentations or a 20-minute uh, PowerPoint, or, those things are negotiable. Building that community is not negotiable. Trust, building trust is not negotiable. That is the energy of sustainability. And uh, I, at our setup days, at our, uh, when we run in the Echo, we ask the community, what are your objectives? What would make you, looking back over the past year, think, I've used my time well in attending these Echoes? And we set those are the objectives. And those are the objectives that we evaluate as to whether that network has achieved its goals. So no longer are the echo participants, if you like, the laboratory rats being examined by the evaluators. They are evaluating themselves, whether they have achieved what they have set out for themselves to achieve. And once they've achieved that, well, maybe that's the end, or, or maybe they want to achieve new things. But remember, our echo participants they're our guests. Uh, they are the heroes that we were talking about. And they are very intelligent and very bright about knowing just what is important. Listen to them. Thank you, Max. Could I put it back into a model in, in the West and in terms of COVID? March the 20th, we started our first uh, echo for all the hospices and palliative care community across the UK in relation to, to, to COVID because we were scared. Can you remember? We, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what we didn't know. And the palliative care community, can, what, what do we do? Should we continue to see patients? Do we do the outpatients? What, what, what do we do with our inpatients? What, 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 all that stuff. Through ECHO, we gathered that community right across the UK we didn't know about our resources. PPE was available in one place, not place in the other. And we, we developed a community of practice to go through COVID 
together so that week on week we got the latest evidence, but we also gathered what was happening in different parts of the country, which we could then feed into the government to say, you need to change your services here. This is what we... So that community was so much more real than many governments who were saying, go to work on Tuesday. Oh, don't go to work on Wednesday. And we're not sure what to do about work on Thursday because they were making it up as... We were at least were, as a community through ECHO, were negotiating and working it through. And so uh, we also changed the research paradigm. Uh, that ECHO, over the course of a year, the, the academics listened to what the, uh, the, the community was saying. These are the questions that we need to know in order to be able to treat patients. They turned it into research protocols. Uh, uh, the, the, the community gathered the data quickly. Imagine palliative care data being gathered quickly, and in the course of a year, we published 12 articles on how palliative care would respond to COVID. I, I, I think the ECHO model is the model that we saw through responding to COVID, what we didn't know, what we didn't know. It's about inclusively involving people who are the key stakeholders and just reminding them that this is about the pain relief of your mum, of your daughter, of your sister. I, I know there are problems, but you know what? Your, your, your mum's pain relief is really important. The ECHO model, I think, is the model which has been used in many different ways to transform the delivery of services. Hi, I'm Rachel Mutro. I'm with the Missouri Telehealth Network and Show Me Echo program. We currently don't have palliative care echo in our um, portfolio, and we're thinking about it. And one of the things, this is a little bit off topic with the questions that you've had so far. One of the things that I always think about with echo is that it's not a panacea. It, it usually doesn't solve a whole problem. And when I talk to people, I like to think about <clears throat> what what part of a multi-pronged approach ECHO would be. And my organization called Missouri Telehealth Network, a lot of times we think telehealth is one of those prongs. And I was just wondering in the, in the uh, areas that you work, have you seen telemedicine used alongside of ECHO for some of the direct patient care um, work that you do in palliative care? Great question, Raj. Uh, thank you for the question. I should have mentioned that earlier. I mentioned that in where palliative care is poorly accessible, where it is not known, where it is confused with only care for the dying, in all those situations, the training will have to be supplemented with continued mentoring. And how can we mentor? So, thank you. Telehealth programs are something that we brought alongside because we needed dedicated people to handle that. When the question comes from 2,000 miles away about a patient and this challenge, we had to do this. This today, I believe what we do is not called part of the echo, but your question makes me realize that it is indeed part of the whole thing. Thank you. Could I just comment again? Uh, we, we have used ECHO 
initially uh, broadly to support a community, and then the communities come back and say, well, actually, what would really, we'd really benefit from a clinic. So there's a 10-minute slot that we could refer patients into and get instant res response. So, so the ECHO has facilitated the development of a service. Uh, but, but ECHO is never the goal. The goal is, if your goal in Missouri is to improve end-of-life care, maybe using ECHO as a way of discovering with providers how they could maybe use some of the new technology, new ways to develop a service. It doesn't have to be based on ECHO, but ECHO can be a great way of engaging with the key stakeholders to work out how that system could be delivered. Thank you, Max. And we have another question over here. Yeah. My name is Ujwal, and I'm from uh, Echo India. Uh, my question is that uh, patients who are terminally ill and their families, you know, they're not just in physical pain, but in a lot of mental trauma as well. And they just don't need medication. They also need empathy from their doctors. So do we have any ECHO programs which train caregivers in showing empathy and how you know you can provide mental succor to not just the patients but their families as well because you know in my own personal experience i was in a lot of pain i kind of uh, under, underwent a operation and when i communicated to the doctor that i'm facing a lot of pain i wasn't kind of uh, treated in an empathetic way you know so so just wanted to have a question around that so you know great question would you all our palliative care training programs have this strong component of psychosocial, psychosocio-spiritual support. Without that, leave alone palliative care, I believe health care would be incomplete. What happened to you following your fracture was total injustice on the part of a possibly well-meaning surgeon who was used to abusing his power. And that has to change. And it is not a separate program, but all our palliative care programs have this strong component. We have to teach them. We use videos. We also use role plays. Could I also say something on the positive side? Uh, at the Indian Association conference in Bangalore, there was representation there from cardiology, from nephrology, from respiratory, from surgery. And India has moved way ahead of the West in recognizing from those individual specialties the importance of end-of-life care. Yes, a long way to go, but that degree of engagement, I haven't seen it in other countries, the recognition that just because we're cardiologists, we also have to develop our empathy skills. And it is happening. It's a long journey to make, but that commitment, India is leading the way on that. Yeah, and I think that often the echo is a way to support that Shit, mental shift for providers because that's the hardest part for them is that the whole medical culture that they go back and practice in is not having that approach. And so even if they learn this new approach, they need ongoing mentorship and support to sort of change the dialogue in their clinical work, in the field, in the hospitals, in the clinics where they work. 
to say, now I see things in a different way. It's, it's not just about that he needs to take the medication and he's non-compliant. It's, it's about why is he not being taking that medicine? And then that turns out, because the roof is leaking. And I, I would say um, one thing I was just going to add to that as well is, again, on our echoes, the interdisciplinary team model is so important. But having who's your facilitator? On our, on our echoes, it's not always the provider facilitating. We have our chaplain facilitate, our social workers facilitate. And again, it emphasizes the importance of, of that holistic perspective. And so that's just a suggestion too, is, is looking at who you emphasize and have on your team to be able to get that global view. There was another question over here. And this will be our last question, so this is great. <clears throat> yes. Okay. And I'll repeat it for everyone to hear, so. Hi, um, my name's Marjorie Nismoltz. I'm a research coordinator um, at Mount Sinai uh, Hospital in New York and a program manager for uh, the intestinal failure echo. Um, first, I just want to do a quick like a personal side note, this was a particularly exciting talk for me to attend because just kind of by chance, um, when I was in college 10 plus years ago, I actually worked and trained at Pallium India um, <laughs> under Dr. Raj. It's okay if you don't remember me. That's, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's, I, it feels a little serendipitous to be here. But I, um, when I was there, I remember that there was a um, kind of like a support group for patients and uh, their families to kind of come together and talk. And I was wondering if you've ever considered um, having an echo where the patients are the participants and they're the ones presenting the cases and giving feedback sort of, you know, under supervision of... Um, providers and clinicians and how that might look and if there are certain challenges to that. So thank you. I hope you will not run away and I will be able to say hello to you. Uh, but we have not got to programs for patients yet. Seems difficult, a bit scary. Maybe we'll get to that someday. But we certainly have programs for families. What you saw was an in-person meeting of bereaved people, Unaru awakening. But what we now also have is this virtual program for them. So that not only are their problems answered and not only are they able to share their experiences, but they also become activists. Uh, Seeing that I have a few seconds left, do I have to go there to ask a question to the par panelists? No. <laughs> Erasing from that. What made you spend time in low and middle income countries, all three of you, so much? And you could have been comfortable in your home. You did not make money doing that. You did that because, why? What? Because I am asking that question. Because many people here would be asking themselves, 
oh if there is that much suffering how can i help how can they help and what will they get out of it thank you raj i've got 20 seconds or less so i felt that it would not be enough to just see the patients in canada and treat them and know that i had done a good job i felt that there was so much more suffering in the world and i needed to take a step and join others in addressing that and um so i encourage everyone to think would that be some step you could take and not to think i'm going to go there and tell and they're going to do these things that i'm an expert in but to join and walk alongside and listen and understand and say how can we share in the burden of this suffering and work on this together and it has been the most rewarding experience of my life and you will not be disappointed if you do this work and you will feel that your life has a bigger meaning and a big is part of a bigger picture um and it kind of counteracts all the negative and depressing things that you see on social media and in the news on some level thank you megan well i just want to share with everyone that's here i am just so inspired by all of you in the room we all have our stories again right and i am so excited we get to share them and i'm so excited that i get to share the stage with these three remarkable people one person um raj who's right next to me we have a unique opportunity um so he just published a book called walk with the weary life changing lessons in healthcare i encourage all of you to meet with raj um or any of us after the session but again what a joy that we come together with hearts of service and and a hope to to make the world a, a better place and in-